1: I'm really excited to introduce and welcome Pat Callori to the Virtual Lacrosse Summit and to the Philoacrosphy Podcast. It's sort of a twofer here. Uh, Pat is the Chief Development Officer for the Headstrong Foundation and is the brother of Nicholas Callori, who passed away 12 years ago. And uh, Pat has dedicated uh, his his life to trying to help cancer victims' families navigate this incredibly difficult process and. What you guys are doing for people is incredible. And um, uh, so happy to have you on the show and, and psyched to hear all about
2: it. Yeah, it's an absolute privilege to be with you today, Jamie. Thank you so much for providing this opportunity and forum for us to further educate people on the history and the mission and the impact of the Headstrong Foundation. It's amazing.
0: The Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 10-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. To learn more or start getting better today, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash academy. So let's, let's kick it
1: off by uh, hearing about your brother, Nicholas, um, about what he was like as, as a kid, as a, as a lacrosse player, and, and uh, how he ended up getting to Hofstra.
2: Sure. Uh, lacrosse had always been part of our lives from growing up as kids. We came from just a, a blue-collar suburb of Philadelphia, known as Ridley. And, um, you know, the game got introduced to us through uh, gentlemen that came before us, uh, players like Mike Buzza. Kevin Ellers, Uh, these were guys who were instrumental in kind of laying the framework for lacrosse in our town and, um, you know, at the end of the day, we were all plucked off of a baseball field. Uh, My father was president of a youth organization. There was a man by the name of Stu Brown, who uh, was very instrumental uh, converting players, if you will. He would bring out the trash can full of lacrosse sticks and identify athletic kids that seemed to be bored. And he ended up uh, introducing my younger brothers to the game uh, well before myself. And um, with that being said, uh, Nicholas was a, a, a young man who just absolutely loved life. He loved the idea of competing. Uh, he was someone who just believed in the spirit of team and playing a role on a team uh, just a constant, like, you know, teammate, someone who would hold the rope in your hands, no matter how hard it burned or how bad it burned. Uh, if it knew that it was going to be for the betterment of his team. Um, he was a three-sport athlete. Um, football, wrestling, lacrosse was kind of, you know, what, what he pursued. And um, he was always super competitive and someone that just held himself to a higher level of accountability. And I think as a result that resonated with his teammates and that was constant throughout his career as an athlete. Um, He had the opportunity to play the game competitively uh, as early as seventh and eighth grade for a club program called the MAB dogs, which was um, a program that was led by a gentleman by the name of Matt Flynn. And uh, Matt had at the time, taking the kids down to play in champ camp, which you probably, you know, were there recruiting at the time. Uh, I remember
1: those MAB dogs. They they were a tough, skilled team of Philly kids. And I I remember watching those guys very, very vividly.
2: Yeah, just last week, uh, we had had lunch with uh, Jim Bruder, and it was his family's business that was MAB Paints. And this was years before, you know, the evolution of the club lacrosse scene. And so that was like the first time that Nicholas had the opportunity to play with a collective of guys that weren't from Ridley. And uh, the relationships that were forged on the field then were just amazing. And so I really believe it was those experiences that fostered his love for the sport. You know, he played the game from a youth standpoint uh, for Folsom or for Ridley Athletic Club. And, um, you know, just, I think, a combination of opportunities. He was coming up and my younger brother, Michael, they were coming up in a time when the game was really growing in southeastern Pennsylvania. And there were a lot of opportunities to uh, experience the sport, have access to great training. Uh, The Philadelphia Wings were just, you know, a, 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 a wonderful outlet to introduce the idea of lacrosse at a professional level. Uh, which I think got a lot of the kids very excited about the opportunities that the sport had to offer. And then our high school program at the time was really buttoned up and it was led by Doug Ellers. And this was a team that as we were coming up was accomplishing state championships. And my younger two brothers, Nicholas and Michael, had the opportunity to be part of three consecutive state championships and play alongside of guys like Bill McGlone and Mike Pagoni and um, Brett Moyer. Uh, Scott Berkheimer, and and, and these guys all really had a hand in kind of shaping Nick as an athlete because, you know, I remember preparatory schools, you know, recruiting my younger two brothers specifically in their eighth grade year, and I remember my brother Nick vividly having conversations with coaches saying thank you for expressing interest in me, but it has always been my desire to play for Ridley. I think from a very early on, there was a a mindset that was driven into, you know, the hearts and the minds of kids coming up through our community that that was just the natural progression. So that by the time the kids got to high school, they were very vested in the high school athletic program. Um, And like I said, that really spoke to Nick's personality. And um, believe it or not, it was uh, Brett Moyer who, was very instrumental in um, introducing Nick Colalori to Joe Amplo and John Donowski. And um, Nick was somewhat of a dark horse. Uh, he wasn't heavily recruited, uh, primarily because even though he was quite tenacious as a midfielder, uh, during his junior and senior year, he, he accepted an opportunity to anchor his defensive core at Ridley. Uh, so up until that point, you know, all eyes that were on him kind of were shifted because he had accepted this new role on the team. And that was not only serving as a captain, but leading the defense. So again, picking up the long pole his junior year um, and then leading a team to two state championships of the three state championships in that role. And so um, it was during that time that um, Nicholas had opportunities. And to be quite honest, you know, his vision was always to, he loved the idea of being a multi-sport athlete, and he loved football as much as he did lacrosse, but lacrosse presented more opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, his interest shifted when he realized that lacrosse, uh, especially Hofstra, uh, w- w- was, was a wonderful opportunity to, to, to play under John Donowski.
1: Yeah, amazing. And so, um, you know, so Brett Moyer, for those people who don't know, is just one of the best defensemen. Of his day, Philly guy, Ridley guy, who went up to Hofstra, and that was probably big reason why Joe Ample knew who your brother was. Because sometimes guys that that are like anchoring the defense like that that move from offense to defense, you know, might get it might slip through the cracks a little bit. But but yeah. coaches are always looking for leaders and competitors and scrappers that can really play on the defensive. And so he ends up at Hofstra and yeah. tell us a little bit about that freshman year.
2: Sure, I mean Nicholas went into Hofstra. A little apprehensive, but with a chip on his shoulder and something to prove. I, I really attribute that to the blue collar work ethic of our father uh, and just the area that we came from in general. Um, you know, Nick was a five foot eight, a hundred and sixty five pound All State nose guard in football, <laughs> and um, just to speak to his tenacity, that's what he was known for. He certainly got the most out of his size, and um, when he got to Hofstra. Um, like like most athletes, it's, you know, one of those opportunities that presents itself once and you really make the most of it. And hopefully it yields the best possible experience for you. And in Nicholas's shoes, upon accepting that opportunity to play Division One lacrosse, his focus became on how he could contribute to the success of that team and how could, he could, you know, get the most out of himself. In fact, upon accepting the opportunity to Hofstra, he told his coaches, you know, I'm coming to be a playmaker. Uh, I'm coming to make, you know, t- to do uh, everything that it is that you demand of me, plus more. And um, he arrived on campus. And um, after his first practice, he went to John Donowski's office and wanted to talk to coach about how he could see the field. He said that he wasn't interested in being a bench member. He wasn't interested in um, being someone that just got forgotten about on the sideline, that he was looking to make changes and he was looking to be a role player. And he was also looking to be a leader. And the funny part was at that point, you know, Nick was relatively uneducated on the role of being a close defenseman. And so it was really players like Brett Moyer, John Orson, Sean McCarthy, uh, but specifically John Orson that took Nicholas under their wing his freshman year And really kind of taught him uh, the true X's and O's and and just the, um, you know, the position as a whole. And um, Nicholas proved himself, uh, was able to not just earn his spot on the roster, but his freshman year was able to work himself into a significant amount of playing time. And I think that Joe Amplo and John Donowski were very happy with just his um, mental capacity and his toughness. Um, the fact that he was willing to do the little things, uh, to chase every ground ball, to um, stay after practice, to put in the hours, to work in the weight room, to, but also to be someone that within a freshman year was starting to earn the respect of the upperclassmen, both on the field, in the locker room, and off the field. Um, you know, and I tell people all the time uh, a story about when um, John Tennant, uh, John Tennant was um, a recruit that was coming in. His father, George Tennant, at the time was involved as a head of the CIA. And um, he was actually, uh, Nicholas was asked to essentially be his chaperone on campus as a freshman. And it was because John and jo- John Donowski and Joe Amplo established a trust with Nick. Uh, he was somebody that was dependable, he was someone that absolutely um, you know, rose to every opportunity and every occasion. And um, when you have someone like that on your team, uh, what that develops is Nicholas was somebody you could develop a team around. He was somebody that you could develop a core culture around. And um, this was all before his cancer diagnosis.
1: Yeah. So speaking of that, how, how did this come about? Everything went from being freshman at Hofstra, playing, loving life, and all of a sudden you guys uh, get, get hit uh, in the face with some bad news. How did that, how did that happen?
2: Sure. Um, it was like a rug being ripped out from under our family. Uh, my brother Nicholas uh, did not traditionally present symptoms. It's not like he developed a mass on a lymph node or um, you know that was visible. Um, what Nicholas was diagnosed with was a very aggressive form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and the type of symptoms that he presented were very on par with that of like seasonal allergies. And so, um, you know, Nicholas came home after experiencing um, an incredible freshman year. Uh, the dream of my younger brother, Michael, following in his footsteps at Hofstra uh, was coming true. Uh, Michael was a, a multi-time um, all-State and All-American from Ridley as well, but he was an attackman. And um, the boys, their dream was to always play collegiate lacrosse at a Division One level together. And um, I can only imagine, you know, what it was like for them to have that dream realized and how exciting that would be, you know. And it, what was interesting was that when you look at the roster of athletes that played on uh, a lot of the John Donowski Hofstra teams, there were a lot of families, you know, and um, for instance, the Prifties and the Untersteins, just a few that were just on there. I think there was probably four sets of brothers that were on the team. So it was really exciting, like I said, for this to be coming true. And the boys spent the entire summer working out and just training to be their best selves, if you will. And um, they get back to school and about three weeks into fall, Um, on September 21st, 2005, Nicholas was diagnosed. And prior to him going back to school, um, he had developed some allergy-like symptoms as I had mentioned. And about, I wanna say it was probably right after Labor Day weekend, he had actually had a tonsillectomy. Um, He had had his adenoids and his tonsils removed. And um, at that time, that was just a procedure as we know that, you know, most children have, you know, my, my son had that done in first grade. And so, you know, for Nicholas, it was a matter of, um, you know, he was made aware that there was some general concern about some of the coloration of the tissue uh, of the adenoids that were, that were you know, uh, extracted. But as far as Nicholas's uh, demeanor and whatnot, even though there was a possibility that it could be cancer, Uh, It was just, it never really registered. Um, It was something that, you know, again, when you're uh, an athlete at the peak of your uh, athletic career and you're working so diligently to uh, be an athlete, be a student, be a good person, you know, then you never think that cancer is gonna impact you. Uh, But as we've learned over the years, it certainly doesn't discriminate. And so, as I had mentioned on September 21st, the results came back, Nicholas did have cancer. to be quite honest with you, I don't think anyone is prepared to hear the words that you have cancer. Um, I think that when that happens, uh, your heart sinks, uh, the lug, the, the, you know, your wing gets taken out, your legs get cut out from under you, and your mind goes to the absolute worst of places. I mean, naturally, um, there was a lot of apprehension and anxiety. My mother and father had learned of Nick's diagnosis, and my brother Daniel and myself were dialed in even before Nicholas. Uh, had knew that he was ill, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that Nicholas and Michael were up at school. They were living together. Um, My parents weren't certain about how they were going to take the news, like how are our children going to react to the fact that one of them is sick. And so mom's second call was to John Donowski, and John created and devised a plan with the other coaching staff and he was able to bring a counselor to the office. And, you know, the idea was mom and my dad were going to drive up to Hofstra and they were going to get Nicholas out of class with Michael at the same time and bring them into um, the office and share this news. And so uh, that's exactly what happened. We felt that it was the best plan. I was at work at home and my brother Dan was also at work. So it was like, you know, we were just, um, quivering, just waiting for the phone call, because like I said, how Nicholas's response was to having cancer, I imagine was going to influence and dictate just how the rest of things would play out. And so upon sharing the news with Nick that he had cancer, uh, I don't want to say Nicholas took the news in stride, but he was certainly confident. That's one thing that I think Nicholas possessed. You know, he had a great mental capacity and a great confidence, and I don't mean to sound that he was, he was not arrogant by any stretch of the imagination. It was just that he had the ability to uh, fight a mental war. He had the ability to rise above adversities uh, because he could harness it and process it. And then, um, so that's exactly what happened. So in an office uh, with John Donowski. Uh, School psychologist the doctor as well as my mom and dad and Nicholas and Michael this news was shared with him You know at the time Jamie we did not know Nick was terminal Uh, In fact, we just assumed what he had being non Hodgkin's lymphoma was relatively common Um, Mm We were we were were foreign to the disease um, outside of having a few relatives like most people in their lives that are touched by it. You don't necessarily think that it's going to affect you until it does. And so we found ourselves in a situation of being rather informed and uneducated and now somewhat in a fearful retraction and also somewhat of a, like, I, I oftentimes refer to it as like um, just, you know, you're reacting without any type of like education or any type yeah. of like comfortability. You're just vulnerable. You have and no so, idea
1: what the realities are, what to do, what what what's the next move, and you're just depending on people that you hope know what they're what they're talking about.
2: You're exactly right. You find yourself at the mercy of so many other people, and so you know. Um, so Nicholas was told the news, and the sad part is, uh, at the same time, my brother Michael's cell phone rang, and my brother Michael answered it, and here his best friend who was a face-off man from Malvern Prep by the name of Evan Brady had passed away earlier that morning. Oof. And so Evan was diagnosed with Ewing's sarcoma in eighth grade. He played and Michael and my younger brother, Michael and Evan met one another playing for the Penn Star team, which was coached by a gentleman by the name of Howdy Myers. And um, at the time, the two boys captained that team. They were really, really tight. And then in ninth grade, upon entering Malvern Prep, Evan was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma. And he battled this disease over the three or four years of his high school. And, um, and with that being said, you know, he was put into remission and then it came back. And um, so our journey against cancer began with the funeral of my brother Michael's best friend losing his fight to cancer. And so that was really difficult because, you know, Nicholas was there literally seeing with cancer what, what had happened. And it was a really difficult moment in our family's life, And I'll be honest though, you know, the way that Nicholas reacted and responded to having cancer was nothing shy of inspirational. He wanted to speak to his team. He believed so much in the importance of shared experiences and understanding how the idea of team can help families and not just help families, but help him navigate cancer. It's like when life throws you adversity and differences and obstacles, You know, it's really important to know that you have a support system around you. And that's exactly what a team is. And so when Nicholas learned of his diagnosis, taking you back to the locker room, uh, Nicholas wanted to speak and to address his team. And uh, that is heavily documented. I know that, um, you know, John Donowski, as well as Joe Amplo talk about it a lot about just the courage that Nick displayed and sharing with his teammates, his diagnosis and what it was gonna result in as far as him re- withdrawing from school and immediately beginning treatment. And um, I can honestly tell you that lacrosse athletics and team got Nicholas through 14 months of hellish treatment that preceded that moment. But back to, like I said, Evan Brady, um, that literally happened, you know, a few days um, Nick Evans funeral happened just a few days after Nick's diagnosis. And so it was, you know, I know it was a scary moment for Nick because it was like a major reality check for what he was about to go through. So
1: and what, what you guys, when you got this diagnosis, you met with a doctor and, you know, at what point did they say, this is, this is serious, you know, because I've read and you've talked talked about this cancer is always serious. But when you hear three months, sure um, it's it's insane you know you're 19 years old yeah. um how did he when did you hear about that and 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 how did he take that news and how did he attack it and then and then if you could just sort of talk about how he, he had the idea of the headstrong foundation from there
2: sure um you know jamie when nicholas was diagnosed we as i had mentioned we really didn't understand the extent or um or the severity of his diagnosis. Uh, what we come to realize was that he was diagnosed with something called mature B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which affected his nasal pharynx. And it was in an operable location, so it had to be treated very um, uh, very aggressively. And his first of treatments uh, were unsuccessful. And that, Jamie, is when we realized just what we were dealing with. Um, so this was extensive chemotherapy paired with radiation and naturally you would think that you know that would do the trick you know that's what everyone thinks and that was our first go-round it was like okay nick's gonna lose his hair he's gonna go through you know the gamut of side effects and you know we're gonna be there And as a family we made a pact when nicholas came home from hofstra to start treatment that we were going to do everything and anything in our power to make sure that A, Nick was never alone, and B, that he had the assurance of a support system, and C, that we were gonna play our position as supportive family members to do whatever it was necessary to keep our family life as normal as possible and to keep him positive. Um, Interestingly enough, that's kind of even, you know, a foundational layer of how we approach Headstrong. Uh, But when he was going through treatment, uh, he was incredibly optimistic. I think one thing that Nicholas understood was that he could control certain things. You know, he couldn't control whether or not the treatment that he was undergoing uh, was going to work. Uh, obviously he could endure the pain of treatment. He could endure, endure the side effects. You know, he could control his attitude, his optimism, his positivity. Um, he could wear a smile and that's something that he did. And you know what, one thing that he did do, which I really, you know, uh was, to this day i'm just somewhat uh at a loss for words for it was just the level of respect that he had for his nurses his physicians my parents and going through all those things his interests and his desires were to make life better for everyone that was showing love and care to him and his his concern was for the well being of our family. He was perplexed, not so much about why he had cancer, but rather what was happening to him was having such a devastating toll on everyone else around us. And so that for me was probably by far one of the most um, amazing things about Nicholas, just that spoke to his selflessness. Mm. And so we learned that, you know, when, 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 probably in January or February of of, um, 2006, early into 2006, when that first regimen of treatment was unsuccessful. And at that point, you know, the window begins to close. It's now a race against time. What's next? Now, again, what they were able to do is they were able to treat my brother with uh, another extensive round of chemotherapy. It then went into um, preparing him for a stem cell transplant. And so, um, again, at that point in time, we still did not understand that Nicholas was terminal. I think the one thing that physicians want to, they, they they don't want families to ever lose hope. I think it's one of the controllables, you know, as long as there are options and as long as that person's with you, you know, you're, um, you are, um, You know you're optimistic. You you're you're doing what you can do. You know, and as long as you have hope, and as long as you have faith, you know there's always going to be there's always going to be an opportunity. Hopefully, and so again, um, honestly, I mean, quite frankly, it wasn't until we lost Nick that physicians said they were shocked that Nicholas had lived for 14 months, and so you know that was really eye-opening for us. And I think learning that after his passing was something that I think really helped us to understand just how much he did fight and um, and and the fact that you know that he was an example of how one should live life and how someone could fight cancer. you know he had a willingness to share his journey publicly for the betterment of others. He always believed in his heart that that his experience through cancer if, if documented and archived the way he did, could serve as a reference point that he wished he had, you know? And um, that in and of itself is kind of where our story as Headstrong began.
1: Amazing, amazing uh, attitude and resilience and what an example. And he lived this, you know, lack of a better word, this nightmare situation and it motivated him and ultimately you guys to figure out ways to help others. Um, and uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the things, you know, as it relates to what, what you could do better and how hard it is to know what to do, where to go and where to find advanced cancer treatments and all that, and how it sort of fit into um, the Headstrong Foundation.
2: Sure. I mean, you know, what, as I had mentioned earlier about Nicholas, Jamie, was that he was deeply concerned for the well-being of everyone around him. And what would happen would be is that my father would go and work a 12 hour day and he would show up and relieve my mom so my mom could get a little rest. And my mom and our family was spending so much time, including Nicholas's fiance, Jordan, they were spending so much extensive inpatient time because, again, given the severity of Nicholas's situation and his declining health, what was happening was is that he had to spend lots of time in the hospital. And again, it was our family's promise to Nick that we would always be there for him. And so, you know, the little things, the ancillary things that people take for granted until they're in that situation. We spend a lot of time in the hospital these days, and people all have the same general concerns. It's their well-being and how their quality of life is compromised in an inpatient setting. And so, you know, Nicholas was consumed with trying to um, fight for the betterment of that first and foremost, by identifying the inconsistencies in the patient experience. And, you know, he was consumed with things like how come he couldn't watch, you know, Hofstra's game on television, or how come the linens in the hospital bed weren't, weren't, weren't comfortable, or how come, you know, his mom didn't have a reclining chair when she's sitting by bedside for 12 hours trying to wait on Nicholas's every possible need. And what he also realized was that not everyone had a support system. Not everyone had visitors and not everyone had people. So Nicholas would walk the floors hooked up to a chemo pole and he would go and visit with people. He would speak with people. He would just, you know, knock on the door and just say, hi, I'm Nick. I'm in the next room. I just wanted to introduce myself. Do you maybe want to have lunch? And, you know, at the end of the day, Nicholas was an advocate for people that did not have a voice. And so, um, you know, that's kind of where his desire for creating the Headstrong Foundation was rooted, his concern for the well-being of others and his own personal experience, and then that of our family, you know, some of the financial obstacles that my family had to endure, the gaps in healthcare. you know, the, the challenges of just having to navigate the most difficult decisions of your life in the most vulnerable circumstances and finances is a leading, you know, a leading problem. And so, you know, I don't think Nick was the type of person that wasn't necessarily out there to cure cancer. And that's not what the Headstrong Foundation does. We're not a sciences based organization. We're out there as a service based interface to work with families and medical centers and be that interface to tackle the tangible things that are influencing and oftentimes preventing people from pursuing treatment regimens that may save their life. And so, you know, um, that's accomplished through a lot of things that Nicholas did himself. And I love the fact that in the last months of his life, that he was so fixated on using his experience and that of our family for the betterment of others, because Jamie, it's allowed our family to move forward through life without him. And when I talk about our service mission, I want to talk to you a little bit about like how Nicholas helped frame that. The first thing was emotional coaching. You know, that's something that you do as a coach every day. And it's interestingly enough that, you know, from an athletic standpoint, we do pull and Nicholas did pull a lot of the, um, a lot of the inspiration for the foundation based on the athletic principles that we experience through game and through team and through sports. Um, the idea of being a direct support system to not only be a teammate but to coach someone up and through the toughest decisions of their life. Yeah, we witnessed it. We lived it. We know what it's like to be in the trenches, and we know what it's like to swallow our pride and ask for help. And we also know what it's like to be in the shoes of the people we serve. And Nicholas understood that. And so, him going around and meeting patients and families and publicly advocating for the disease, and you know, being somebody that didn't try to approach it from the sterileness of a medical community standpoint, but from a human standpoint, and just being real with people and helping people understand that, you know, that this doesn't have to define them, that there's ways to control through optimism and positivity and, and realizing that, that love is something that conquers all. Um, so today, we stand as a direct resource to families, coaching them up and through the toughest times of their life, their cancer journey. Now, obviously the financial strain, sudden medical debt. It's one of the leading causes of home foreclosure in the United States. People really don't understand the extent of their healthcare situation until they need it. So right out the gate, you're reacting. And, you know, with that being said, my brother Nicholas was in a predicament back then he ran the risk and did lose his health insurance by not being a student athlete. So, you know, not just being a student athlete, but being a college student in general. Um, and with that being said, in addition to navigating terminal cancer, my mother and father now had to get very street smart on how to sustain Nicholas's health insurance. Why should families have to do that? Uh, that is exactly some of the dilemmas that our family experienced and why we were so blessed to have the lacrosse community as a support system during that time. Because again, at one point, Nicholas's medical expenses were upwards of a quarter of a million dollars a month. Mm -hmm. And with you have somebody that's just declining in health and therefore people, their support system and caregivers aren't working, they're not recording income. And our situation was is that we had to learn how to navigate life with 50% the income. And then on top of it, amounting medical expenses. And then when my brother passed away, you know, his student loan and his funeral expenses. I mean, you know, the the bills just amounted and it probably took my family upwards of about a half of a decade to dig out of that hole. And now today, you know, what we're able to provide to people is not just financial assistance and support, but also advice and mentorship through resources that are designed to teach people how to navigate the financial challenges that present themselves. And so also one of the major issues is logistics. You know, I wish I could say the cancer treatments were readily accessible. I wish I could say specialty clinicians are readily available in every location throughout the United States. But the reality is, is that that is not possible. And that is not, that's not what happens. And so You know, with that being said, there are certain markets and certain areas that have access to cancer centers and advanced cancer centers and proton radiation and the most advanced treatment options. And where you find those learning hospitals, you also find a concentration of researchers and and leading specialists. I don't know about you, but if I was diagnosed with cancer, I would want the best possible clinician managing my case. Uh, Just like if you were on a lacrosse field, you know, you would want the best possible coaching mind developing you, you know, it's the same premise. And so, you know, when treatment did not work for my brother Nicholas, um, we were sent home and the options were hospice or clinical trial. And the clinical trial was in Bethesda, Maryland. Facing little to no options, you go. I mean, when you're faced with your mortality, you go and there were two situations throughout our journey that really shed light on the hardships that families endure uh the first one was we met a family living out of the parking garage of the hospital that nicholas was being treated at and they were just hit so financially hard that it was just a situation that they were forced into uh they were literally living out of the car taking shifts, caring for their loved one while their daughter received a bone marrow transplant. You know, when Nicholas's stem cell transplant did not work, we went to Bethesda, Maryland, and there was accommodations, but it lacked uh, the comforts of home. It was a sterile environment. It did not feel comfortable. It was, um, you know, it was one of those things where, again, facing Nick's mortality and minimal treatment options, we had to pick up and go. Fortunately, it was driving distance, but for so many families, Jamie, it's across the country that they have to travel thousands of miles for six to eight months on average, you know, and so we knew what it was like to be in that situation. And the sad part was, is that because of the extensive treatment that Nicholas had endured, by the time that clinical trial rolled around, his, his vital organs were not healthy to, uh, to withstand those treatments, Um, his kidneys were really, you know, really suffered um, with respect to the extensive chemotherapy that he had endured for 12 months up until that point. And so, you know, logistics and lodging really round out the Headstrong Foundation service mission. Uh, Having met that family living out of their car, my family sprung into action and offered them a place to stay. Um, Two years into operating Headstrong formally, Uh, We came upon a, a building. And what I love about Headstrong is that, you know what? We started out very unconventionally and untraditionally. We started out with a promise, a promise to Nick. And that promise then took us to a boardroom, which was a classroom at the high school that we attended, and an office that was my old bedroom where Nicholas spent the last days of his life. And over the years, we've continued to evolve. And we came upon a building and at the time, this building had an apartment on top of it. And the idea was, and it was in um, terrible condition. And my mother and my father ended up, you know, remortgaging their home to give us the opportunity to take Headstrong to the next level. And I think at the end of the day, that's one of the more amazing things in this journey and why I think it's been met with such, such success and because it's real. And I take great pride in sharing that with you because when you believe in something wholeheartedly, you know, you, you just go with it. And like I said, my mom and dad said, we need to be able to do something for this unmet need. We can't have people living out of a parking garage. And so this office that we rehabilitated also had an apartment Above it, which for the first six years we operated as Nick's house. And we welcomed families from across the country. And what was amazing was that we could provide to them a support system right, right there, you know, that could, to, could address all their health concerns and needs and just be a mutual empathetic arm that could help them and, and, and be a direct support system in an area that they were foreign to. And so for six years we welcomed families, but it certainly had its fair share of learning hurdles. Uh, we desired to be ADA compliant. We desired to you know to accommodate more families. Uh, again, we're led by a pretty simple philosophy: it's the more we can do, is the more we can do. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And you know, again, it all stems back from Nicholas's experience. And so you know, the idea of Nick's house was born to life based on that. And um, we saw what a resource Nick's house was for families. And as a result, you know we built on that initiative. Two years ago, we expanded Nick's house to encompass a home and we partnered with more than 45 construction entities to resurrect a home that was 125 years old. And this house had eight bedrooms and it was large and expansive. And it gave us the ability to quadruple our impact through Nick's house. It allowed us to have seven families under one roof. And it allowed us to weave them into the fabric of a community and allowed them to commute into the hospitals daily. And it allowed them to put these leading treatments on their destination plans without incurring the expenses that oftentimes prevent them from. And it allowed people the ability to reap the mutual benefit of having a support system of other families dealing with a multitude of cancers under one roof. And then on top of that, you know, we provide workstations so that caregivers, you know, don't have to go without their jobs, that they can produce income, that they can sustain their employment and their health care and their benefits for their loved ones. You know, virtual classrooms so that children can continue to stay productive in the in the classroom while continuing to go through treatment. And recreational space where people can unwind, where we offer laughter yoga and regular yoga and knitting and art therapy and things like that so that again we're helping nurture the soul of these patients and we even have private rooms where you know people that need to seek the financial advice or the psychological support or even religious counsel can go and and have that private time with those people. And so, again, we were able to take a major step as an organization, and it all goes back to Nick's desire to live with quality of life and normalcy. And we find that to be the commonality amongst the more than 18,000 families that we've had the privilege of serving over this past 12 years.
0: The Philacrosby podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information.
1: It's truly incredible what you guys are doing. And the more I hear about it, the more I want to be involved. And I'm sure that you would love to have as many people involved as possible, because if you can raise more money, you can do more things for people. Um, And um, what are some of your plans, um, you know, coming up?
2: Sure, I mean, you know, the vision of the Headstrong Foundation is bright. The philanthropic mission is steeped in being the resource that we wish existed when the rug was ripped out from under us, and I explained to you the service mission. You know, my brother Nicholas, I always go back to who he was, And when I look on my wall, you know, I see the mission statement and the short-term and long-term goals that he had not only for himself, but for this foundation. You know, for those who don't know, his nickname was Head. That's where Headstrong came from. I gave him the nickname when he was three years old. (laughs) You know, the lime green shoelaces that we became synonymous with, and it's really become kind of our moniker, that not only was the lime green, which was the awareness color for the disease he had. But his desire sitting in a hospital room at the University of Pennsylvania, undergoing treatment, he just desired to just be able to go outside again, just to be on a lacrosse field again. He used to say things like, when, when I'm on a lacrosse field, when I'm back at practice, when I'm at the games, it's like all that I'm going through doesn't matter because I'm part of something bigger than myself. And the attention isn't on the fact that I have cancer. It's the fact that, you know what, I'm just normal again. And his short-term goals, Jamie, was to get back to his original weight and size and get back to Hofstra to be back on the playing field. And I actually have a couple of videos, which I'll share with you, where he actually talks about that, where he just desired to be back at school. Um, believe it or not, after enduring a uh, 45-day impatient stay, uh, we were playing, um, my younger brothers were playing for uh, the Southeastern Summer youthful uh, the Summer Lacrosse League here um, for a bar team called Pickles Place. And uh, my brother ended up getting discharged on a day that we had a game. And he had asked my dad, he had desired so much to, you know, to be back onto the lacrosse field that um, he just wanted to go to a game. And so, you know, he left the hospital, that day was discharged, ended up... Going to the game, but lo and behold, packing his pads and his equipment. And um, he ducked behind a truck at halftime and uh, popped up. And my father was like, Where's Nick at? Lo and behold, he was standing on the sideline. And my father said, What are you doing? You're going to put yourself back in the hospital. And Nick looked at my dad and said, You know what, dad? I'm going to end up back in the hospital one way or another. I just really want to get out on the field and play. So my father and my mother let him run one shift. He went out on the face-off wing, came up with a big ground ball, threw it up field, assisted a goal, came off the field. And it was amazing because, you know, he took his helmet off and uh, he just had such a smile on his face. And at that point in time, Jamie, he had been, he was down about 60 pounds. Um, Cancer was taking its toll. And it was like one of those moments that, you know, he said to himself, you don't have me yet. You don't have me yet. He went on the battle another 14 months, but, I'm sorry, another four months, but from that time in the hospital, that desire to create the shoelaces was just an opportunity. It was an opportunity to start a dialogue. And and, and that's what Nicholas was doing during his extensive downtime, but you know, from receiving treatment. He was dreaming of the days of playing lacrosse again. He was dreaming of the days of being back on the lacrosse field. He was comforted by the jerseys and the helmets and the letters from lacrosse players from around the country that were like, we're in your corner, dude. Like we got your back, Nick, you know, we're, we're carrying this on. And, you know, and the idea was is that Nick was creating a way for those guys that loved him so much to keep, to keep him on the field. And um, he also thought that the lime green shoelaces could start a dialogue. And so I'll be the first to tell you that game that happened at Notre Dame, the Lord's Field at Pritchard Field uh, was the first game that anyone ever wore the laces, and they were him and they were his. You know, he wore the laces first. And from that point on, you know, the ball began to roll. And so, you know, it's been amazing over the past 12 years to see so many lacrosse players continuing the champion Nick's journey and, and all that he stood for. You know, we talk about team. Just last week, um, we were up at Long Island at Hofstra University, Jamie, and uh, Seth Tierney called us into the locker room, and um, I don't know if you saw that on Inside Lacrosse or on any of the lacrosse blogs that are out there but, that had covered it, but um, they had actually unearthed the game jersey that Nick had worn 15 years ago at Hofstra, and they presented it to our family uh, in the locker room, and it was kind of ironic because that's kind of where the journey began with Headstrong and Hofstra in that locker room with Nick standing on a stool and sharing his journey with with with, with, with his teammates and knowing that it was going to be their fight against cancer, not just his. And uh, it was like one of those really, really special moments. But, you know, my brother Nick was actually, uh, when he passed away, he decided that he wanted to be laid out and buried in, in, in his Hofstra uniform. And I think that's an important thing that just speaks to the importance of what team and that program meant to him, that, he, that, that that's what he wore at his funeral. And, um, and that's something that, again, still gives me the chills to this day. Um, someone that I think really I'd like to give an acknowledgement to is Seth Tierney. Uh, Seth Tierney has played an incredible role, Joe Amplo as well. But Seth Tierney, of inheriting Hofstra's program, you got to remember something. When Nicholas, when Nicholas was at Hofstra, not only was he amidst his cancer battle, but John Donowski who has always been an advocate for Headstrong was uh, vacated the role of head coach to pursue Duke. And with that being said, he was the right guy for that job. Um, Seth inherited the job in, 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 at, at Hostra. And what was amazing upon being named head coach, Seth Tierney made his first phone call to my brother, Nick. And Nick answered the phone and Seth said, Nick, you are Hostra lacrosse this is my first phone call. I want to introduce myself. I want you to know that I'm going to carry this and you're going to get back here soon. And when you do, we're going to do great things together. And unfortunately, you know, Seth never had the opportunity to coach Nick directly, but got to know him in the last part of Nick's life. And the relationship was solidified and bound in a way where Seth actually gave Nick's eulogy. And over the past 13 years, Seth has continued to champion Nicholas's legacy um, through creating events and, you know, creating opportunities on campus and creating an honorary award in Nick's name where seniors wear his number and, you know, golf outings and amazing things that just celebrate Nick's life uh, with the program. And, um, you yeah, I just definitely want to give my hats off to Seth Tierney. He's an incredible guy that I really admire. Amazing. You know, so, so Matt,
1: people want to be involved and help. What's the best thing that they can do and where can they get more information? And sure they want to get involved at whatever level, how
2: would they do that? Sure. Um I will say this. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about Headstrong for sure, but I'll get right to the point. Headstrong.org or on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Headstrong FND. We have amazing events, amazing campaigns. We have experienced teams that are coming to life now where we're taking players that wanna be part of the mission and giving them the opportunity to do so, whether it be through events like the Lake Placid Summit Classic. Um, Within the sport, we have opportunities and campaigns that allow players the ability to leverage their statistics as a mechanism for advancing the mission and raising funds. We have things like Lacrosse Mustache Madness, Game Hair Havoc, our fall event series, Coaches can pledge games, they can recognize athletes, and athletes can also get behind the foundation in a way that allows them to check a community service box that's maybe necessary for recruiting purposes. Um, but the idea is, is that you know it's our social responsibility to be in places and to present opportunities that allow athletes the opportunity to be part of our family and our mission and our community. And so you know, I would advise and encourage people that want to advance the mission. They can certainly make a donation at any time online, Um, especially, like I said, Thanksgiving's coming up. We have a campaign that's intended to provide Thanksgiving meals to families overcome by cancer that are impatient for the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, But right now, we're amidst our fall event series, our Lacrosse Mustache Madness campaign, which is underway. And people can go to that at lax But like I said, they can always extend an email to us at any time. We really pride ourselves on our accessibility, Jamie, and our, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is led by a family. Yeah. And, it's, and, and our roots are focused on celebrating the life of someone that's no longer here. And the desire is to have as large of an impact as we ha- can on behalf of people that don't have a voice to meet that unmet need to be that support system and to celebrate Nick's life and keep him part of the dialogue. So we oftentimes welcome the ideas and the creativity of players. We have school districts that literally do technology days where they, you know, go a week without technology checking your cell phone and they raise funds around that. We have thons, we have events that, you know, anyone can do. We have shootouts where people I know in Rockville Center last year, they organized an event that shot 27,000 shots for for the cause. We have face-off clinics and campaigns. We have some really great partnerships that are out there that, that, that encompass every level of the sport, which is really cool. So whether it's the PLL or the NLL or yeah. even, you know, the club side of the game, all the way down the youth, we even have a platform that allows officials to pledge their earnings during games if they'd like to make a donation. So um, you can go to headstrong.org to learn more.
1: Nicholas uh, would be proud of all of the uh, efforts and the progress that you've made over these last 12 years. I mean, you just keep adding and adding and adding and adding and adding and, adding, and it's, uh, it's incredible. Um, you know, being a part of a team is so special. The sport of lacrosse is so special. Hostra, you know for you guys has been so special um you told a story the last time we spoke about the way uh Nicholas was uh, able to see his uh, teammates for the last time maybe you could just leave us with this because it just shows the power of relationships and team and um and it probably just propelled you guys onto this journey that you're on now
2: yeah you know as I had mentioned um I I would be absolutely remiss if I said that Nicholas did not have a difficult time with being 19 years old and having cancer, you know, was Nicholas upset at times? Certainly. Was he depressed at times? Certainly, you know, but, but at the end of the day, he was able to navigate those things. And it was the idea of team surrounding him in his most weakened state that um, really helped him to, to just go through the process and acceptance of having cancer and just processing his mortality. Um, You know, one thing that I think Nicholas was so concerned about was um, just how the void of him not being there would affect his brother, Michael, who was a teammate, and his team, which he often referred to as his brothers. So when we had gotten word that Nicholas wasn't going to make it, Um, my mom reached out directly to Seth Tierney and Seth Tierney and the Hofstra athletic staff organized a chartered bus trip to our house. Um, The entire team came into our home. They drove from Long Island to Philadelphia and they piled into our living room where my brother Nick sat in a chair and for three hours my brother with a smile on his face through the pain just held court. And these boys, it was just an amazing moment that you're thankful that you're part of athletics to just witness and experience it. I oftentimes say that I wish somebody filmed it, but then again, it's again, it's one of those things where I'm just happy I have that memory in my heart because it's maybe an, an, a memory that 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 the guys that are in that room shared was something that certainly bonded all of us but for three hours Nicholas was able to find strength and he was able to just have that camaraderie and it was interesting because our journey began with a team huddled in a locker room and our journey ended with Nicholas's team huddled around him in our family room and it was just such an amazing moment and it was one of those things where Nicholas. Again, who knows how to you know, navigate that? Right. But I will say this, the unconditional love of team and brothers uh, with a shared commonality of lacrosse, it was just the perfect situation for Nick to be able to say goodbye to his teammates. And how do you say goodbye? I think that those kids that left that house that day probably understood that Nick fought as hard as he possibly could that there was nothing more that that he could do. But the fact that they left that house smiling, knowing that Nicholas was comfortable with the way things were and knowing that he was making them laugh and them smile in, in that time, it almost like eased the difficulty of saying goodbye to someone. And again... I had the privilege of being in that house. I, I, it was probably one of the most amazing things that had ever happened to our family. It's amazing how you can say that, yeah. how, how could, how something that could be so tragic be also so amazing. Right. And I just think that that's what, what the unique thing about life is. Um, you just never know what's going to be presented to you. You know, Nicholas is an example of how someone can navigate life's greatest challenge with a smile and, 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 and just, um, you know, and, and knowing that someone can fight and fight, but at the end of the day, you know, our fate is in the hands of a higher being. And it's a matter of just how you accept that. And, you know, I think Nicholas was going through a lot mentally, especially knowing that he was going to be leaving behind everyone he cared about in the world. And that was his biggest fear. And I will state that again, having cancer was not Nicholas's fear. But knowing that his time was limited, and knowing that there was a possibility that and, and, and eventually it was he was going to be leaving this earth. Um, he was scared for my parents, he was scared for his brothers, he was scared for his fiance and he was scared for his teammates. And it was just a very fitting special moment. And if you were to talk to Joe Amplo, or Seth Tierney, or anybody that was in that room, they'll tell you the same. It was probably one of the most humbling experiences of their life. And, um, you know, I just, I couldn't think of a better way for Nick and his teammates to, uh, to have a closing, if you will, of the chapter, which was his battle. And every single person that was in that room has continued to champion on behalf of Nick. Um, whether that be, like I said, John Orson or Kevin Understein or Steven Donopoli or John Gorman, anybody that was on that team you know, carries that with them. Um, and it's just, like I said, a special bonding moment for all of us.
1: It's amazing. It's an amazing story. It's powerful in in, in what you guys have done, uh, in the wake of all of this, you know, in, in Nicholas's memory, um, and, you know, leveraging the power of team and the power of helping and the power of even the littlest things can make a huge difference in someone's life. Um, yeah. So I just want to say congrats on everything that you guys are doing. Um, I really look forward to personally getting involved with you guys. Um, you. And, um, and any, anytime I can ever help out, please let me know. Thank you so much for coming on and, Thank sharing, you, Jamie. and sharing your story and, and all the hard work you guys are doing to help people. It's, it's incredible stuff. Thank you so much, my man. All right. We'll
0: be in touch. Thanks, pal. Thanks, Pat. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 Video Assessment Tool. There's no question that video is critical to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3sports.com forward slash video right now.